we're exhausted, we're emotionally drained, we need a period of healing. And if you know anything about that literature, you know that that's intentional rest and work reduction, or in some way, just allowing us some grace to breathe Mm -hmm. and come back to baseline. You're back at the Faculty Factory podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski looking at Dr. Wendy Ward. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Kim. Well, everybody out there listening, Dr. Wendy Ward, the Associate Provost for Faculty in the Division of Academic Affairs at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences, has been on the Faculty Factory podcast eight other times. She is our most frequent flyer, high miles Priority Club member, so many episodes. You must take a look. And so, gosh, uh, her episode started way back in June of, let me get this spreadsheet, this slide over, June of 2020. And then through December of 2028, episodes that range from 10 Things Early Career Professionals Can Do to Promote Work-Life Balance, 10 Things Early Career Professionals Can Do to Prepare for Promotion, Interprofessional Education, How to Talk with Your Mentor, Busy Clinicians Who Want to Get Published, Leadership Skills, Teaching Skills, Mentoring Programs, so many topics with so much depth and so much encouragement and inspiration, exactly what we're trying to do here on the Faculty Factory community. So Dr. Wendy Ward, you have a great set of um, ideas to talk about today that I think are gonna reach all of our audience members. Why don't you start by just, I kind of breezed over your new associate provost title, but would you like to say anything about Arkansas and your title and uh, where we find you now two years later, post-ish, COVID, pandemic-y stuff. Um, And please feel free to start with that, and then we'll go into the conversation of the day. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, This is such a wonderful venue for talking about things that are important for faculty in general, but also for those who are in faculty affairs and development roles and how they can better help support faculty. Um, I am really excited about my new role. I assume the Associate Provost for Faculty in July 2020 in the midst of the pandemic, not an ideal time to be onboarding into such a role, but um, it has galvanized quite a bit of change and rethinking about how faculty affairs offices support faculty during a pandemic and also how we want to um, support folks during this prolonged pandemic. And what I mean by that is the emotional reaction that all of us are going through in this shared prolonged experience. Thank you so much, Wendy. Um, so you you talked first about the fact that you have been restructuring the office, which I think is really important when we think about our tenure as leaders and succession planning and how important I think term limits are just to reinvigorate, to reinfuse. And so I'm really curious to hear how you're thinking about and moving along your office and how that looks. And then we'll talk about some other super important things. Fantastic. So our center had been here for um, a number of years already, and we had a team of administrators. I'm the only faculty in the 
in the center at the moment. Um, and they were really focused on a couple of things. There's a strong, strong women's faculty development group. There's support of promotion and tenure across colleges, not just the College of Medicine. Our center is campus um, and institution-wide, multiple campuses and institution-wide. Um, and we had uh, spent a lot of resources developing a faculty database from which we can watch trends and better target um, our interventions and support services. When I joined the faculty, however, that those databases had become more automatic and required fewer personnel, and it provided an opportunity to reorganize the office into two arms. One was really faculty affairs focused and one was very faculty development focused. And my history courses in faculty development, if you've heard any of my other podcasts, and um, I really wanted to bring some energy and enthusiasm into that aspect of what we were doing. So we sat down as a team and started thinking about faculty across the life cycle and what we could do at each touch point so not just early career and not just those who are retiring, but everything in between. We created um, a new name for ourselves. We call ourselves the Center for Faculty Excellence. And we have a mission to support faculty across uh, the faculty life cycle, starting with recruitment, engaging in um, better practices, more inclusivity, um, to uh, address our recruitment strategies, uh, appointment, more clarity and transparency in that process, uh, moving into onboarding and orientation, which is sort of a combined element of HR stuff they need to know, and then practical in your department stuff you need to know. And then our piece is what do you know, what do you need to know about the culture here? How can we help with strategic, um, intentional networking for you? How can we help you feel part of our community? Um, so trying to sort of intentionally um, uh, uh, help with that process. And we were grant supported to build a two-year cohort-based um, program with luncheons so that people could come together who were new, start building those relationships, and they would start learning about resources. So not didactic focused, but conversational. So we're having people come in and talk about time management and our teaching academy and our Translational Research Institute and support for scientists, all the things that they might want to know about, but in a more friendly, conversational way. Wendy, Wendy, Wendy may I please interrupt you because I'm dying here. <laughs> the first thing you said is we, when we started to, to reconfigure our faculty affairs and faculty development, those two arms, calling the Center for Faculty Excellence, and you said a couple of times, we, we, we. Who's the we when you are re-envisioning this? What kind of people, are, not the names necessarily, but the level, the, the type of people who were the we who rethought this? Sure, 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 sure. So we, in our reorg, we did... Um, have the opportunity to shift some positions around. So I'm happy to talk about it. There is a director of the Center for Faculty Excellence. Her name is Emily Freeman. She's been part of the center for a long time and um, is really doing a wonderful job in that uh, directorship role. We have two program managers under her. One is for the faculty affairs arm, runs all those databases, health of promotion and tenure, number of other 
things we'll talk about in a minute. And then uh, we have a program manager for our faculty development arm. And then each of those program managers have one person beneath them with the opportunity of growing that as we develop more programs. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, secondly, you said something about grant support. You had two years of grant support to do these lovely luncheons with speakers. Wait a minute, hold the phone. Who is writing? Who's giving grants to do this kind of work? And congratulations for finding it and getting it. Oh, well, it's very hard to find resources for grant support external to the institution. So we have two grant supported programs currently in our office, and that one comes from our provost. Our provost has an open call for um, programs that make a difference. She focuses on interprofessional collaboration. We received funds from her and her office to support our new mentoring program. Um, so pairing mentors and mentees uh, with um, uh, over a, a one-year period with evaluations in the beginning, in the middle, and the end to see if we're having some positive impact. And then our onboarding and orientation to here cohort is supported by um, the chancellors has a group of people um, who fund his special initiatives. And so we pitched that idea to that group. I think there is a really a strong focus here at UAMS on retention, wellness, and promotion success. And because of the, that tripartite focus, our office has been seen as one potential group that could be helpful. Kudos to UAMS leadership and kudos to you and your team for capitalizing on that opportunity and building new. May I ask one more question or maybe one last question? Uh, the Center for Faculty Excellence. I'm curious how you, not necessarily why you changed the name, but can you talk a little bit about words and, and, and naming and why that makes a difference and why that means something. Can you talk about how, why, and then why that name? Sure, sure. That actually took about six months for us to think through what we wanted to rebrand ourselves as. We knew we, we wanted to be more, so instead of being patient-focused like we are in the clinical world, we wanted to be faculty-focused. So um, a lot of the work that was happening in the faculty center was not obvious to faculty, we wanted to be out there and we wanted to be supportive. And so we're supporting faculty excellence from recruitment to retirement. And that's our, that's sort of our logo. It's um, uh, our new branding. We, we started uh, using that logo and those words on everything that we've done. And we've um, been successful, I think, in having people rethink of us as a hub for resources which is different than thinking of us as support for promotion or the holder of the databases or some of the other good work that we were doing. We didn't lose any of that. We just added a whole bunch of other work. Well, Wendy, this is, I think it's a really important um, contribution to moving us ahead. And, and as you're saying it, rebranding and rethinking, and now as we're coming out of or into a new reality, maybe this is really, really good time for us to, try to meet faculty where they are. And I've been thinking lately, thanks to the prodding of uh, our colleague, Martin Feeder, who retired from the University of Chicago. He's emeritus now, and he was the provost of faculty, um, senior, so whatever, he was a, he was a leader with, in faculty affairs. And he's always, he's one of these deep thinkers. And he's 
shared with me, oh gosh, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but it's about community assets. His name will come up to me in a second. And how important it is when we talk about just how, how, how much words matter. And, and so, for example, in this, this gentleman's um, case, instead of talking about underrepresented in medicine and leading with that, it kind of reminds me of leading with, you know, you don't say disabled people. You don't lead with the um, underrepresented, disabled. You lead with the asset and these cognitive you know, frameworks can and distortions can change how we think about things. So rather than leading with the, the deficits, talk about the assets. So in a way, it got me thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, we call our office of in Hopkins, the office of faculty development. And it almost kind of makes me think, well, my, geez, are, is that just putting an assumption that you're not fully developed until you come through us? You know, and, and I feel like our faculty said, hello, thank you very much. I'm a fully developed human adult. I've got a number of letters after my name. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you very much. I don't need you. So if you're making me, you're, this is a really good timing because it makes me think, what are we doing? Are we optimizing? So Office of Faculty Excellence, Faculty Optimization, or is the office of getting out of our way, the office of just giving us resources and we'll we'll be fine. Thank you very much. I mean, I just think it's great how you've done this and how you are shifting focus and perhaps encouraging us to change our cognitive biases around uh, words and, and recognizing that words can mean something. So good for you. Thank you. I also think that... Um faculty development might limit people and and think that it's just for early career. And we've intentionally added things at the mid and the late career level as well. So uh, it just makes us um, seem more accessible and supportive to all faculty, regardless of where they are on the career life cycle. That is so smart, Wendy. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, you're so right. We tend to I think we do a disservice to our mid-career, later career faculty who think, yeah, there's nothing for me there. I've already been promoted. I know how to write papers. Rather than think, like here at Hopkins, we've developed these late career programs called the next chapter and thinking about now what? You've done this. Now, how do you like the, the 501 level version of whatever? And so I think you're right. I think we've missed a lot of opportunity by allowing that um stereotype or preconceived notion of what that office does. It's either for remediation when you've gotten in trouble somehow, or you're just new to the whole scene and you someone needs to help you figure stuff out. Rather, there's a lot more that we can contribute to the optimization. And now just before I forget it, because I want to give credit where credit is due to Doc, not only Martin Feeder for sharing this name with me, but it's Trabian Shorters. Trabian Shorters has this assets concept and, and urging us to rethink, you know, words and leading with underrepresented in versus faculty we want to keep who are really good and we have trouble recruiting and retaining them. So thank you, Wendy. So Wendy Ward, now you want to lead into something else that's really juicy and good for us. And I'll let you kind of take it from here. Well, I thought before we transition to that, I thought I'd just do a little overview of what we're doing at the different career life cycles, just so that if there are people out there listening who maybe don't know their faculty affairs group well or want to reach out with a specific ask, they might have some more ideas about what's possible out there. Right. Perfect. So our early career, in addition to the one-on-one mentoring program pairing, um, that uh, that we have. We also started a faculty excellence seminar series. 
So two noon times a month, live stream so you can watch it at your desk and record it and put into online modules if you can't. Focusing on one of six categories. So teaching skills, research skills, leadership development, professional wellness, strategic career planning slash mentorship skill. I'm blanking on what the last one is. Um, uh, oh, our academic senate has a couple of spots. So the idea being that we give foundational skill development for that early career. Then as they transition into mid-career, we do some more intensive mentorship skill training, and we also pair with HR to learn management skills so that folks who are starting to have personnel under them are going to understand the policies and the processes for both developing and celebrating those folks, but also remediating or dealing with problems with those folks. Um, and then we are also in partnership with um, the U of A Fayetteville campus and their business school in trying to co-design a leadership development program that's for our mid-career faculty. Those folks who are in their first or maybe second leadership role and really need to be nurtured in that way. And then as we move into mid-career, from mid-career into late career, We've developed an executive coaching program that's really for those who are tracking towards higher level leadership roles, um, a chair professional development program. So like the Faculty Excellence Seminar Series for Early Career, this is for those who really need to have those higher level skills. Financial management might be one of those things that we're really um, specifically promoting um, how to create uh, an inclusive culture might be something else creating a culture of wellness from a leadership level, those kinds of things. And then we're also trying to be in a place of sponsoring people who maybe don't feel comfortable or confident enough for some of those leadership roles. So we can help sponsor women, underrepresented minorities or others who maybe aren't putting themselves out there to be considered and to have their vitas seen by people. And then as folks approach retirement, we have a really strong um, Ameritai group, they are offering a mentorship program for that transition, in addition to a seminar series on the variety of things you need to think about if you're um, tracking toward that transition in your career. And we provide the Ameritai, Ameritai Faculty Council and their whole group some support for their events and programs. Wow, Wendy. So another a great example of how Wendy Ward, Arkansas, you always seem to be like ahead of the curve. And it's so interesting. Just this morning, I was talking with my boss, my our new Hopkins Vice Dean for Faculty, Dr. Maria Oliva Hemker. And she was, we were talking about what's going to look like in FY23. And we have so many offerings, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of courses and seminars and workshops. And how do we repackage, repurpose? without thinking we have to dump everything, blow it all up and start over. And then she suggested just what you're saying is thinking about just instead of cataloging and emailing and marketing things as you know research related, communication related, education related, leadership related, re recategorize or resort by early career, mid-career, later career, so that it helps faculty to see the options at the stage they are versus a whole bunch of things that are research related or writing related or clinic growing related. So it just 
interesting that you kind of had the same idea of how we can um, rebrand and make it more evident that, mm-hmm. you know, we have something for you, even though somebody say, well, I was promoted associate professor 10 years ago. What could they possibly offer me that I don't know? So I, I like how you're thinking as usual. And I think it's really great the way you provide a comprehensive uh, menu for faculty along the entire life course. So that's awesome. So that's the faculty development arm of our office. The uh, faculty affairs arm remains. So the support for promotion and tenure, the process of dealing with maybe significant unprofessional behavior, awards at the institution level, that kind of stuff happens with that other arm. But the the front-facing part of the office has become so much more robust. So we've seen an uptick in calling with questions, um, suggestions for topics in our series, wanting to be part of our programs, that it's just made us more accessible um, and and seen, I think, uh, by faculty and helpful, really. Good, good. Great job. Thank you. So if we we were... um, talking as a team about how we could better reach those three initiatives I talked about at the beginning, um, professional wellness, retention, and promotion success. You can't bump up against that without thinking about we're in the midst of a pandemic and what could we possibly do that could be helpful for our people in the midst of the pandemic. And most people um, rely, I think, on resiliency skill building. And there's certainly a place for that we each do a better or worse job at taking care of and managing our own stress, right? So there's a place for mindfulness. There's a lot of literature that supports it for positive thinking approaches, for problem solving, um, programs like having supportive conversations, all of that under what I would consider more of an emotional wellness sort of rubric. And of course, physical activity, getting good sleep, things that can also help with stress management. But I really wanted to look at things um, in a broader sort of manner. And there's two pieces that I think faculty affairs and development professionals could think about more often and implement. One of those is really getting in the space of efficiency of practice and trying to help people at the unit level, at the clinic level, have the tools to be able to say, this is not working well, it's increasing our stress level, we'd like to try something different here. And we found that our chief quality officer and the programs that he was doing were bigger picture sort of um, length of stay and uh, targeting trying to um, be better than national averages so that we could recuperate money. And that's important. And some of that work was patient satisfaction or patient care focused. But if we brought wellness to the quality improvement model, and I believe I spoke about this in a, a little bit in one of my previous podcasts, um, the Quality Improvement and Advanced Learning Program. I, if we could do that to our faculty, our clinical staff, and our residents, and give them the tools to make changes in their own units, then they have less hopelessness, less helplessness, more power and autonomy to fix things. And so we've really been partnering with the um, quality office and trying to have those conversations and implement those kinds of changes at that unit, at that small specific level where a small tweak in process can have a big impact. Okay, Wendy, wait a second. Tell, can you give us an example of what 
a thing or a couple things that have have changed as a result of this empowerment of owning a process or or the quality officer either did it or the faculty did it? What what give us an example? Sure. Discharge processing has been a source of stress. So trying to make sure that all the pieces um, are in place so that a discharge can happen efficiently. Now, the quality office is interested in that because we need to have um, discharge processes that are consistent with other benchmarks. But the staff are interested in that because they're having to manage, continue to manage people who are really ready to go home while they're intaking new people. And sometimes there's a crunch waiting for that bed. So trying to improve the discharge process has been um, an important one. And we've done a couple of things to try and help with that. One of which is to streamline things and we use Epic, um, but streamline things in our um, uh, electronic health record so that everyone is getting pop-ups and reminders so they can sign off and do what they need to do to try and streamline it. And that's all automated. So no one is having to call or like a nurse trying to call around or um, unit clerk to um, make sure that all things are set. The other thing that we did, and we had to stop because of the pandemic, but we created a discharge unit. It was a mobile and ambulatory unit, not beds, but we could transition people into that unit waiting for those signatures. And it allowed us an opportunity for our students to be able to go over discharge um, uh, recommendations and see if there were any questions or concerns and avoid a return to hospitalization or lots of calls later. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. There's also a med reconciliation process that happened with our pharmacy students. So that idea while on pause because of the pandemic, it's logistically a little harder with safety concerns, but we'll, we'll bring that back. And that allowed the units where those patients were to be able to transition them while feeling they're going to be well taken care of and they can shift their focus. Wow. So thoughts about, and I'm not a clinician, but I'm trying to pretend like I am for a moment. Um, How do you handle, or have there been any interventions around? So you described something that sounds really important, mechanistically procedure that's computer, computer based automated systems on electronically. What about good old fashioned transport people who the reason why the person can't get discharged is because there's no one to take them from their room to the parking lot where dad's sitting and waiting. How do I know at Hopkins and I'm sure everywhere else around the country, we're dealing with a major staff shortages. Oh yeah. I'm dying to know if you figured out any efficiencies of practice around good old fashioned person power. Yeah. I don't know that we have, um, magic solutions here, but I can tell you a couple of things we've had to do in a pinch. Um, We have enlisted our students who are desperate for clinical time, some of which during the pandemic they weren't able to do, especially in the younger years. We've enlisted them to help with patient transport and uh, responding to call buttons, which has been particularly helpful with the nursing shortage. And then we've had stockroom shortage. We've had transport shortage, like lots of places in the hospital. So we've also had an open call to our staff um, to volunteer to, instead of working in their office, particularly the administrative staff, instead of working in their office, they could go and pull a shift in the stock room or as a transport or delivering food 
That was another one that we, we needed more hands-on. And the staff that feels so badly for the clinical partners who are exhausted and understaffed feel like they're doing something to help. We even have them pull in extra shifts on the weekends or in the evenings to try and help because it makes them feel like they're doing something. And it gave us, I want to say, a, we're all in this together family kind of feel where if we hadn't had that open call for people to volunteer, we might not have had. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that sense of opening up opportunities, allowing people to feel like they are contributing. I think a lot of times it makes me think like on the micro level, you don't want to bother people. You don't want to, I don't want to stress people or I don't want to be a burden to anybody. But then when you don't ask for help, you're not giving someone else the opportunity to serve. And I think that's so important during the pandemic that a lot of us who aren't clinicians, we do, our hearts are big for the fact, for the faculty and for the frontline people. And we want to help, but we don't know how to. And so it doesn't take that much of a opening up the confidence intervals to say, oh, come on, you know, can't Kim Scrubs come in and empty some garbage? I'm happy to do it instead of sitting at my house, you know, and, and stressing out. Um, so I think that's really, really uh, smart that we just kind of all kind of pivot and shift a minute and you can't lose from that. So that's, that's a really great idea to fill in some gaps. So if I can transition us from efficiency of practice and thinking, what else can we do to help with professional wellness beyond the the, the typical resiliency skill building stuff? There's actually quite a few other things. I think a lot about recognition in work. And we have a number of awards that we give annually, um, but we've been thinking about how to broaden those so that we can honor more people. We've been more expansive on the kudos given in newsletters at the college level and the department level. Meetings are started with who has kudos for the week or for the month um, since we last met, and we'll spontaneously bring up things large and small, but people need to hear that. It doesn't cost us anything anything to be able to recognize others. And right now, so many people are giving of their time, of their talents, um, to the point of exhaustion that we have to recognize that they've done so. So I do think we can do a better job of of thinking about how to highlight meaning in work and and recognizing people. I also have found that um, while policy work is not mm, sexy, it does have um, a significant impact. So some of the policies that I've been helping um, uh, revise or create have to do with hiring someone with tenure from another institution Hmm. that helps ease that recruitment process for those worried about giving up tenure and whether they could earn it again here. Um, We've been doing some things with um, maternity, paternity leave, working from home, things that help alleviate burden and improve the stress level of people from a policy perspective. Yeah. Um, During last summer in the pandemic, we partnered with a middle school. Last summer, uh, all the summer camps closed, the daycares closed. There was nothing for um, employees or faculty with young children. So we did two things. One was we, um, there's a middle school really close to here. And we helped staff the middle school, have volunteer teachers or or camp counselors or whatever, and created a summer camp for our employees with the support of the local Rotary Club and some other 
um, charitable organizations. In addition, we created pods. So people who are interested, we grouped them together where they were geographically located. And it might be that one person took off to watch the children of the pod, but it alleviated everybody having to have one spouse take off to watch their kids. And, it be, and they created kind of fun things to do in the midst of the summer. So again, just sort of thinking outside the box, we, we learned about that from a listening session, that that could be helpful. We built it. We didn't have to manage it or administrate it. We just paired people together and they figured it out. Hmm. So um, I think those are some good things. Uh, we certainly have embraced town halls and bi-directional communication. We do focus groups frequently, trying to find sources of stress and alleviate them or at least be transparent about why they're there, which alleviates some degree of the stress. Um, our chief wellness officer, many of our key senior leaders are doing more with videos and emails and communicating more um, intentionally and more frequently, that helps. And there's always a path for getting a response back um, up, up to the channel if you've got a question or a suggestion or something like that. The third thing that we've been really intentionally working on is leadership development. If you can have your leaders well-trained in how to create a culture of wellness and implement that on the unit level or the department level, you have much less stress out workforce, despite the challenges we're all under in the pandemic. So we've been doing some trainings with them, um, environment of inclusivity, culture of wellness, how to create psychological safety so you, your people will talk to you and tell you what's really going on. And we've been providing coaching for the leaders that we think is really helpful. Wendy, which, what leaders, what level of leaders are you talking now? Are you saying on the floor or department or school? Like what are the whole, uh, the whole gamut up and down or all? Sure. <laughs> sure. So our nursing leaders have a leadership development program that's implemented. Um, our office isn't involved as much with that. We do uh, with the department chairs have that. We also have um, some touch points with senior leaders. So the vice chancellors, the provost, the chancellors, um, so that everybody's on the same page about how to um, approach these ideas. Um, yeah, I, I think that leaders model how to manage stress in addition to model how to create a, 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 an environment that is supportive. And if you can get them to do both those things, it has some degree of support um, for the faculty. Wow. Now, were you uh, kind of ahead of the game because you had already, pardon the use of the phrase, vaccinated your leaders pre-pandemic about leadership? Or did when this whole thing came down, did you just kind of like rush the shores and like leadership, we need to train everybody, hurry up, we need to have, make sure we've got a good culture here? Was it a hurry up and catch up or was it a booster that you'd already been doing? It was just part of the Arkansas culture. Yeah, I think it was a hurry up and catch up. I mean, we have leadership development programs here, but the um, capacity was low. When I uh, took over in this new job, I have a history of running a leadership development program. I knew the benefit at the department level for all the section chiefs to be trained. So what I wanted to do is trying to bring that experience, partner with others interested and, and others with expertise in this space and create something. And some of those have been early wins, I guess. And then others are bigger. So this program that we want to build with um, 
the business school at our partner institution, that's a bigger thing. The capacity is going to be huge. The cost is going to be high. So we have to find the right balance there. But I'm super excited about bringing that aspect to um, what's already happening. And we run the culture of wellness workshop for leaders. And we'll take anyone at any level in the organization. And we're full every time. So I know people are wanting to do it and they just don't know how. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Now, so the only other thing that I would say that people could think about from a, from a wellness perspective, I don't know about your institution, but we put a kibosh on anything social out of the risk of, you know, the, the virus being spread. Right. And what we lost there is pretty huge. We lost personal connections uh, in our learners. Our our residents haven't seen each other with masks off. Um, So the the students don't feel as supported or like they belong or part of the community. Our new faculty don't feel that way. We've lost something. And when senior leaders say, well, maybe we'll just not do social events for another year and see how it goes. I'm the voice saying social events are just bluff. They serve an important purpose from a wellness perspective, a retention perspective, Mm -hmm. an engagement perspective, and that we need to see them for what they are. And some of those are spontaneous, you know, a baby shower for someone in your unit. Mm -hmm. Others are more intentional or formal, like a special interest group or an affinity group or a learning community. And all of those could be supported by a faculty affairs office and could be really helpful for those who feel a little bit alone and are looking for their subgroup, their people in amongst the institution. That's right. Because, you know, well, this is a whole other podcast episode, right? The we, we don't know our true capacity until we see ourselves with other people. We, I mean, we are made, meant to be in community, in relation. And as a sociologist, I'm always reflecting on Charles Horton Cooley, the looking glass self. And that's the idea of each to each a looking glass reflects the other that doth pass that we see ourselves in each other. Mm-hmm. And so this is getting kind of deep and woo woo, but I feel like when we, when we are only looking at one dimensional versions of ourselves or the masked versions of ourselves, you know, we're, and people and parents are seeing this, of course, their kids in schools that we are starting to lose this sense of community and otherness. And we're so inward focused and it's not going to be good for our fill in the blank, science, our teaching, our patient care, our growth, our treatment, cure, discovery, prevent, all that stuff. We, you know, we thrive in community. So I'm all about, and being the extrovert, I too, I miss the the energy that people together have. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I'm looking forward to the social connectedness that makes us better. <laughs> I I totally agree. And then maybe one final touch point on how we can support each other from a wellness perspective. We're doing a lot of workshops on post-traumatic growth and we're not quite post the trauma yet. We're all very, very hopeful, but we we don't know if we're quite there yet. Pretty post, pretty close post, pretty post. Pretty close post. Um, but, But we're trying to talk to people about what it's like to go through a prolonged traumatic event. And it isn't that the the pandemic's gonna end and poof, we feel better. We're exhausted, we're emotionally drained. We need a period of healing. And if you know anything about that literature, you know that that's intentional rest and um, work reduction or or, 
um, in some way, just allowing us some grace to breathe Mm -hmm. and um, come back to baseline. Or some people, when they have time to breathe and reflect, actually come back to better than baseline. And you may have met, I know I've met people who are already sort of thinking about the epiphanies that they have had during this transition. And if you look at the post-traumatic growth literature, there's five or six areas in which you might um, grow from this experience. And that flips the, the perspective, the cognitive approach to thinking about you in a pandemic, which is as a victim. And you can now think about yourself as a survivor and a thriver. And so some of those things are, um, you might have realized you have more internal strength than you knew. Mm. And you take that confidence with you into the future, right? Right. You might have been exploring the meaning in the work that you do, whether that's meaning in relationship to a particular religion or meaning, just meaning in the work. Mm-hmm. And recognizing yourself as doing a high degree of meaning in your work. And we know that that promotes vitality, enthusiasm about work, engagement, that sort of thing. And so you deepen that cognitive engagement with fundamental existential questions about death and the purpose of life and that deeper meaning. Then there also are people who decide to make changes, right? Mm-hmm. They might reflect upon this period and say, I'd like to be more involved with students after this experience, or I'd like to be more involved in research on the impact on the workforce, or I might want to be doing something a little bit different um, in my life, in my career. Um, We certainly know some people are deciding to retire um, Mm -hmm. at this point after being through it. So just opening your eyes to new opportunities and reframing your purpose can be another outcome of a prolonged Uh, traumatic event. Certainly greater appreciation for life, that gratitude. People frequently say they've got a silver lining. I know what my silver linings have been, several work-related and personal that have helped me um, reframe the experience that I'm going through. Um, But just the appreciation and the gratitude that we are alive, that we are vaccinated, that we have such a thing that we are approaching the quote unquote end of the pandemic or resumption of an endemic um, if if it happens. Um, And then the final thing is people tend to gravitate toward relationships. So they grow closer to supportive others. Those relationships deepen in connection and authentic sharing, you become closer and you better accept the idea that you need others and that they need you. So, all five of those are things that we might pull and not just survive, but thrive after the pandemic, come to a place that's better than we were before the pandemic as a function of reflecting on all of these um, particular aspects. Oh, Wendy Ward, post-traumatic growth literature. I love those five growth areas of moving from victim to survivor, thriver. And of course, now I can't wait to start thinking about how we can convene small groups of faculty, build little communities to just have these conversations in a relaxed environment with a great big exhale and and walking alongside our faculty members as they 
optimize who they are and what they're going to do and who they will be moving forward. This has been so, so exciting to me. I'm, as usual, I learned so much with you. Thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, is there anything you'd like to end with? You've given us so much. My paper is jammed full of notes everywhere. But um, thank you so much for having me. I I always love coming and talking about the things that we're struggling with, whether we've got things to share for lessons learned or whether we're just all struggling with the same issues. I just um, really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast again. Thank you for inviting me. Faculty Factory friends, Wendy Warren, yes, the Associate Provost for Faculty in the Division of Academic Affairs at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences at the front. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your generosity on being in the Faculty Factory for nine episodes now. (laughs) And if you want to be on this podcast or you know somebody else who should be, would you email me at facultyfactorykim? That's facultyfactorykim. Squish it all together at Gmail. Until the next time, see you in the podcast. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more. Get in touch with me. Ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.